Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Have you experienced God's grace in little ordinary things? We witness this in the list of items that Paul asks Timothy to bring with him while Paul is in prison. You're listening to An Old Coat, Books, and a Friend by guest minister Reverend Galen Meyer. I appreciate the opportunity to worship you this evening. I must say my wife and I have had a long relationship, I guess, with the grave. Way back in the 60s when we were college students, we often came here on Sunday nights for the adult fellowship. When you're a hungry college student, let me tell you, a bowl of good soup, some fellowship, there was always a lecture or a speech made, and then we'd stay for the evening service. It was good. Well, our scripture lesson for this evening is taken from 2 Samuel, page 1854. This is Paul's last letter. And we'll read the end of the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 9. He writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you. So do Prudence, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. The word of the Lord. Congregation of Jesus Christ. The years have quickly passed for Paul since that day when the ascended Christ confronted him in a blinding light on the road to Damascus and commissioned him a rigidly legalistic Pharisee to preach the gospel of grace. Talk about divine irony. 
Now Paul is confined in Rome, aware that his earthly life is almost over. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, he writes to Timothy, and the time has come for my departure. Paul is lonely. You can tell that in the passage. Demas, a fellow missionary, has turned his back on him for a more lucrative way of life, I suppose. Two other colleagues, maybe assigned by Paul, have left Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke, the physician, remains. But that's not enough. In words absolutely etched in pathos, Paul writes his young protege, Timothy, to come quickly before winter, if possible, and to take with him the cloak Paul left in Troas, as well as the scrolls and especially the parchments he apparently left with Timothy. Think of it. Paul faces death on the executioner's block. But he's not frantic. Lonely, sure, but not frantic. And he longs for very ordinary things. He may, in a way, prefigure William Tyndale in 1535, who, languishing in a Belgian prison and awaiting execution at the stake for making his English translation of the Bible publicly available, wrote a note to the governor of the prison asking for a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from the cold and have a cough, a warmer coat also for what I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too with which to patch my leggings, and I ask that I be allowed to have a lamp in the evening for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But most of all, most of all, I beg your clemency, permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, my grammar and dictionary, and in return, I pray, I pray good may come to you in accordance with the salvation of your soul. If Paul's requests at this time of his life are as ordinary as oatmeal, we might wonder why in the world they're in the Bible. Are they only meant to help us understand Paul as a fellow human being who might have the same needs we have, even though our circumstances are vastly different? I think the reason runs far deeper than that. You see, the amazing grace of God, the amazing grace of God that Paul, was, that Paul so effectively preached is something that the Holy Spirit works into our very pores. And not only through the word and the sacraments, but also through the ordinary stuff of life. A warm coat for the body, good book for the mind, 
an old friend for the soul. It seems, moreover, that these ordinary channels of God's grace become especially important when we experience some shaking of our foundation, perhaps when we we catch the smell of our own approaching death. So let's look at Paul's ordinary requests one at a time to see what they teach, teach us about the extraordinary ways of God's grace. When you come, when you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas. When Paul writes these words to Timothy, Timothy is a missionary pastor in Ephesus, located on the eastern shoreline of the Aegean, in what we now call Turkey. Troas is located on the same coastline, about 125 miles to the north. Timothy will have to pass through Troas on his way to Rome, a distance of about 850 miles by land and by sea. And who's Carpus? He's a man who gets his 15 minutes of fame simply because he has Paul's cloak. That's all. There's no other reference to him in the Bible. And why does he have the cloak? Did Paul loan it to him? Was Carpus a tailor? Was he supposed to fix it? Or was the cloak simply a bit of laundry that Paul dropped off at uh, Carpus's place and then forgot? When you read this passage, you can't help but wonder why Paul even bothers to tell Timothy to pick it up. Certainly winter was coming and Paul needed something warm in prison. But weren't cloaks available in Rome? Couldn't Luke find one for him? And what about all those good people Paul mentions at the end of the letter who send their greetings to Timothy? Eubulus, Putin's, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. Did none of them have a cloak they could give Paul or at least loan him? I think Paul wants the cloak he left with Carpus for very personal reasons. This old cloak, this old cloak was likely the one companion that had been through it all with him as he preached the good news of God's grace through Jesus Christ. The beatings, the stonings, the whippings, the shipwrecks, the dusty roads, the hunger, the jail cells, the loneliness. I have a coat like that. It's a jacket or a blouse to a set of olive drab jungle fatigues that I wore a lot when I was a chaplain to a U.S. Marine Infantry Battalion in Vietnam back in 1967-68. I keep it in a footlocker next to my recliner and take it out now and then to look at it, 
sometimes to put it on. We went through a lot together, that old jacket and I. Monsoon, rain, and mud. Dark, dangerous jungle trails, enemy fire. Foxholes that filled with water in the night. Intense, intense times of prayer and counsel and worship with Marines and days of loneliness for my wife and our baby son I had not yet seen or held. The old coat brings it all back to me and it reminds me of God's grace through it all. Maybe you have a similar coat. It's a coat you wore on your first date with the woman who is now your wife. It was a football game. The weather was cold, snowflakes in the air. She shivered. You took that coat off and wrapped it around her shoulders. She smiled at you. You knew then and you, knew, and you know even better now that she's the best thing God ever brought into your life. Maybe it was the coat you wore when you left the hospital with your newborn baby. It was a damp and chilly day in March. You wrapped that little baby in a blanket so tiny, so fragile, and tucked the bundle into your coat as an orderly wheeled you to the waiting car. And whenever you slip on that coat now, you can feel that baby against your chest the baby for whom you had long prayed and still pray. Perhaps the coat is not one that you ever wore yourself. It's the coat your mother used to wear to church when you were very small. You always sat next to her and leaned against the deep softness of that coat. Your mother's long gone. But whenever you take out the coat, it almost brings her back. And you feel again the love and security God brought to you through her. Or your special coat may be a varsity jacket. When you sit with it, turn it over in your lap. Feel the raised letter on the back. You remember your youth, your friends, and the goodness of God. Now, maybe you think it a bit silly that anybody should, see, that anybody should be so personally touched by an old coat or nearly profane to suggest that the Apostle Paul might be so touched in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, however, the Apostle Peter says that God's grace comes to us in various forms. Did you get that? Various forms. Could that include an old coat? In her book, Life and Death in Shanghai, Nian Cheng, 
speaks of experiencing a surprising form of God's grace. When she was imprisoned for more than six years in a solitary cell during Mao Zedong's murderous cultural revolution in the 1960s and early 70s, one day she saw, she saw a small spider creep through the bars of her cell. She watched as the little creature spun its web and then waited beside it. The spider became her dear companion in the days that followed. Sometimes the spider repaired the web when necessary and sometimes added to it. The wonder, the simple wonder of that little spider brought Nian Cheng's mind back to her creator and his love and his care for his whole creation, including those of his children unjustly imprisoned under tyrants. If the Holy Spirit can show us God's grace through a spider, he can do the same through an old coat that evokes solid memories of the grace he's worked in our lives, sometimes in the midst of dark experiences. When we handle the coat, when we feel its texture, when we smell days gone by in its fabric, we know that the same God whose grace sustained us in the past will never ever let us go. Though God's grace often takes the most ordinary forms around us, we usually don't notice it. And maybe, just maybe, that's why Jesus likes to call our attention to little brown sparrows and tiny wild flowers so that we'll be more aware of God's presence and his grace that surround us like the atmosphere we breathe. When you come, bring my scrolls, especially my parchments. Besides his cloak, Paul wants Timothy to bring his scrolls and parchments, meaning his, his books. Scroll was made out of parchment, of papyrus. A scroll was made out of papyrus, rather. Parchments were far more durable. They were made of leather. Some commentators think it likely that the parchments, Paul requests, are the Hebrew scripture, or what we call the Old Testament. And that's why he instructs Timothy to bring especially the parchments. What the scrolls contain, we don't know. Perhaps some of Paul's own compositions or maybe the writings of some other apostles. Also possible, I suppose, that they contain the thoughts of people who don't share Paul's convictions. 
Paul was a well-educated man, and he read widely. In Acts 17, he quotes with appreciation some of the pagan Greek poets when he speaks to the philosophers of Athens on Mars Hill. In his work of tutoring Timothy, showing him how the Hebrew scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Paul may have loaned Timothy some of his parchments and now, however, he would would like them back. Some books, says the 16th century essayist Francis Bacon, are to be tasted. Others to be swallowed. Some few to be chewed and digested. Whatever the scrolls and parchments contain that Paul requests, they are obviously for him ones to be chewed and digested. Otherwise, he would not have bothered to ask for them. In his commentary on 2 Timothy, John Calvin says that the meaning of Paul's request for the cloak he left at Troas is of no interest to him. But he finds Paul's request for the scrolls and the parchments to be exploding with urgent implications for sound Christian living. Speaking with the zeal of a librarian, Calvin says, it's obvious that although the apostle was already preparing for death, he had not given up reading. Where are those who think that they've progressed so far that they need do no more? And which of them dares compare himself with Paul? Still more, does this passage refute the madness of the fanatics who despise books and condemn all reading and boast only of their religious zeal and their private inspiration by God? We should note that this passage commends continual reading for all godly people. Well, though Calvin's stern words might, uh, his stern words about the need for continual reading might make me feel a little guilty the next time I check to see what's new on Netflix. Fundamentally, I agree with him. Good books nourish the faith. This is certainly obvious in the works of Presbyterian pastor Tim Keller. One of his favorite personal go-to writers, he says, has long been C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I think many of us would say, I understand that. I appreciate Lewis too. We have others as well, I'm sure. One who's meant a lot to me over the years is the German Lutheran pastor theologian Helmut Tilke. I took one book of his to Vietnam with me. It was, a, it was something I needed to read and reread. 
But why is Paul so eager to have his scrolls and parchments returned? He has come to that point in life when many pastors sell their books, sometimes for so many dollars per linear foot of shelf space. Or why doesn't Paul simply tell Timothy that he can keep the scrolls and parchments? After all, Timothy is just beginning his life as missionary pastor and Paul is near the end of his. But you know, that wouldn't be Paul. He is ever eager, ever eager to show, even in the brief time he has left, that the gospel of grace that he was commissioned to preach is nothing new. As he puts it in the letter to the Romans, it's something to which the law, meaning Moses and the prophets, testify. And to do this, Paul needs his scrolls and parchments. I'm also convinced that Paul wants them for the, continue, for the sustenance of his own soul. He knows he can't hold fast to the faith at a time like this, simply with the weak fingers of his emotions, to keep the faith, especially in difficult circumstances like his. He has to embrace it ever more firmly with his mind. Well-reasoned convictions, well-reasoned convictions wrought through sound reading and study are the reinforcing rods that the Holy Spirit uses in pouring the footings of our faith to keep them from buckling when our world shakes. We can take a lesson from Paul's request for his scrolls and parchments. None of us, none of us lives the Christian life all alone by our own vision, wisdom, or wits. We live it by the grace and guidance of God that often comes to us through other people, sometimes those we know personally and sometimes those who speak to us at a deeper level with thoughts well-developed and expressed on the printed page that we can read, reread, and ponder. Do your best to come to me quickly. Do your best to get here before winter. Can words be more poignant than these? There's a loneliness in Paul's heart that only a dear friend can satisfy. And he's afraid that winter may make Timothy's visit impossible. Did you notice that Paul's three requests seem to grow in intensity? He certainly wants the old coat he left in Troas. More than that, however, he wants the scrolls and especially the parchments. But most of all, most of all, he wants to see his friend as soon as he can. 
God can use an old coat as a channel of his grace when it brings back memories of his faithfulness. He certainly uses books as well, his own, the Bible, and also the thoughtful works of his people to assure us of his grace and give us hope. Most of all, however, in the ordinary common interchanges of life, he uses good friends as the channels of his grace. David knew this. In 1 Samuel 10, he tells his friend Jonathan that he fears Saul. Jonathan's father plans to kill him. Jonathan says, oh, no, no, no. He tries to reassure David of Saul's continuing favor. But David is not persuaded. As the Lord lives, he says to Jonathan, as the Lord lives, there's just a step between me and death at the hands of King Saul. And you know the rest of the story. David's instincts are right on the mark. Like David, we too experience fear, deep anxiety, and pain. We lose a friend, a loved one, for example. We face a grave illness. Or we fall to sins that threaten to unravel our lives in shame. And it seems there's only one small step between us and death until there's a friend like Jonathan to stand in the gap, listening, feeling with us our sorrows and our fears, and then through genuinely compassionate words and actions, conveying to us the hope, the strength, the grace of God. In the movie, Dead Man Walking, based on Sister Helen Prejean's book of the same title, the chaplain at the Louisiana State Prison, Father Foley, is not at all pleased with Sister Helen's visits to a killer, Matthew Poncelet, on death row. He says to her, the boy is to be executed. He is in dire need of redemption. You can save the boy by getting him to receive the sacraments of the church. That's your job. No more, no less. Though a devout nun, Sister Helen simply can't accept the idea that God's grace can only be dispensed in a sacramental wafer, she befriends the killer. She befriends the killer, Poncelet. Gently, persistently, she prods him. 
to confess his crimes as only a trusted friend can do. And only then, only then is Ponsolet open to the balm of God's grace that Sister Helen applies through the words of Isaiah. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I've called you by name. You're mine. Should you pass through the sea, I'll be with you. Should you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched and the flames will not burn you. And before Ponsolet enters the execution chamber, Sister Helen whispers to him, Look, I want the last thing you see in this world to be the face of love. You look at me when they do this thing. You look at me. I'll be the face of love for you. Ponsolet dies without the sacramental wafer from Father Foley's hand. Still he, a killer, dies within the custody of God's grace, conveyed by someone who took the trouble, real trouble, to befriend him. In the extreme experiences of life, when we need so desperately the grace of God, it often comes to us most clearly, most effectively, through a friend. And I think many of you here tonight could testify to that. Sometimes we learn this too late, way too late in life, thinking we're quite self-sufficient, thank you, Years ago, when I was pursuing a master's in English literature at the University of Michigan, I had a professor who was about to retire. He was a respected and published scholar in English Renaissance literature. One day, in a soliloquy, directed somewhere outside the window of the classroom, he said softly, at my age, I need a friend more than I need to write another book. Why do we feel such emptiness when we lack a friend? Why is the need for a friend as basic as the need for food, water, and air? Is it because we're created in the image and the likeness of the triune God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, in perfect fellowship of love, one God. If so, we're designed for fellowship and love 
We're wired for friends. We need them. If we were created in the image and likeness of a single personed God, self-absorbed in his own holy perfections, then maybe the life of rugged individualism would be the life to live. Scrambling to the top of the department, perhaps rudely over the heads of others, would be the way to go. And we'd never feel the need for a friend over the need to write another book. The Apostle Paul knew that God saves and makes us his own children for all eternity through Jesus Christ in an overwhelming, amazing, stunning act of grace that we receive by faith. And we know this as well. But once we, once we experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we can see it everywhere. Even in an old coat, a good book, and a friend, it surrounds us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that your grace is beyond our imagination, beyond our calculation. It's great. Help us to see it and experience it, not only through Jesus Christ, but beyond that, in the beautiful things with which you surround us. Good stuff. Help us to see it, your presence and grace, in an old coat, a good book, a friend, sparrows, and wildflowers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.